This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we bring in special guest Kelsey Hightower from Google and Josh Atwell from NetApp Solidfire to talk about developer advocacy, containers, and Kubernetes. Realize what you do to me. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. On Skype today, we have Glenn Sizemore. Say hello, Glenn. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Glenn. In the studio, we have Andrew Sullivan. Hello, Justin. Hi. So uh, today, we brought a very special guest from Google, um, Kelsey Hightower. And if you're not familiar with Kelsey Hightower's work or uh, what he does... You should follow him on Twitter, and we'll let him talk a little bit more about what he does and, and what sort of uh, things he posts on Twitter. But I highly recommend to follow if you if you haven't already followed him. Uh, Kelsey, could you introduce yourself? Tell us about what you do and uh, a little bit about your social media presence and, and anything else you want to say. Cool. So, uh, yeah, I'm Kelsey Hightower. Currently work at Google. Um, have a background in development, uh, system administration, and I think what I do is advocate for people like me, right? Um, I had the job of running infrastructure. I know what that pain feels like. So I take that source of empathy and try to figure out ways to empower you know, people with my background or people in the field or in the community and try to keep things honest. So what you see from me on Twitter is making sure that you know sharing anything that I'm learning, whether that's using Kubernetes, Docker, Nomad, various things in a container space, or some of the research papers that I'm interested in. So kind of my goal right now is really leveling people up so that more people can get involved in creating some of this new excitement that we're seeing in the infrastructure space. And Kelsey, if, any, if people wanted to follow you on Twitter, how would they follow you? What was your uh, handle? Uh, at Kelsey Hightower. So real simple, my real name, um, and now my real picture. <laughs> so, and, and that's Kelsey with an E. I actually invited him to this podcast with Kelsey without an E. So I'm glad he showed up because I was worried he'd be confused I was talking about a different Kelsey. Oh, no, I'm here. So that's good. That's good. I love how you outed yourself for no reason. Uh, you know what? I, that's what I do. You know, I mean, I don't have any shame. Um, that's, one of my, that's one of my key attributes. It's useful, yeah. You say attribute, we say quirk. <laughs> a lot of people say negative. Do not hire. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Kelsey... Um, at Google, and, and let's, let's start off actually first with talking about Kubernetes and what it is for people who don't know what it is, because we get a pretty broad audience here at uh, the Tech on Tap podcast, and mostly it's storage related. So let's start off with your take on what Kubernetes is and where it fits within the container landscape. Fantastic. So I like to tell people at a very high level, Kubernetes is something below a pass. So if you're familiar with something like Heroku Cloud Foundry, so that would be a PaaS, kind of an application platform, you know, pretty opinionated. And it sits in between that and, you know, like a VM, right? So if you're, you know, got some VMs, you got some hypervisors, you kind of carve out virtual machines and you give that out to people. So what Kubernetes does is kind of sit in the middle between that. And most people would use Kubernetes as a higher level starting point, right below a PaaS to either build their own platform or just use the framework as it is uh, to build automation tools on top of. So out of the box... It's meant and designed to manage containers, 
uh, in a way that we've done previously at Google, but with a nice twist of community flair using some of the open source projects like Docker, uh, service discovery via etcd, and integration with other things like Logstash to give you kind of a complete environment for managing your applications. So I think one of the really great things about Kubernetes is it's it's a flexible framework, right? In other words, you know, you mentioned Docker, but it doesn't just support Docker containers. It supports Rocket containers as well. And there's a lot of things that you can add in on top of Kubernetes in order to provide additional services. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, the goal is to be agnostic to the container runtime. And if you think about what Kubernetes really is, it's really a declarative system to say, I need these five applications running, and I want three copies of each. And then we just do a whole bunch of machinery in the background to keep that definition true. So, you know, you may take your containers to decide to run them on a rocket, Docker, or any other compatible uh, container runtime that understands the Docker image format. So we kind of do standardize a little bit on the Docker image format just because it's so popular and it's pretty easy to create them. Yeah, so, and one other thing, uh, you know, I want to bisect sort of users or consumers of containers into two areas. Um, so one being developers uh, who are actually most frequently creating containers, right? They're using containers for their application or for their development environment and all of these other things that you know, Docker itself really appeals to. And then the other side is administrators, right? So the people who are supporting the infrastructure that is, is running all of these containers. So do you see a, a difference or, or a, a is there different values for each one of those groups with Kubernetes versus, say, Swarm or, or Mesos with Marathon? I think it's all the same. I think the container just represents the contract. So if you're a developer, you're producing the container as an artifact. If maybe you're in ops and maybe you don't write applications and you're more on the deployment side of the house, the container just represents the thing that you deploy. So instead of telling someone, hey, deploy this Ruby on Rails app, deploy this Java application, you're more like deploy this container. And that common abstraction just makes it easier for the developer to produce whatever they need to, bundle all of their dependencies, and then talk in terms of a container name and version. And then you can take that container name and version and push it to any of the tools that you just mentioned. Yeah, you know, we've talked about containers a few times, um, as well as the major orchestrators on the podcast before. And, you know, in particular, I think the most recent time was right after DockerCon. But it, it's alarming and really, uh, in, I guess, uh, uh, enlivening at the same time, uh, how quickly containers are changing things, right? How quickly they're changing how applications are being, you know, deployed. It's no longer, you know, here's an RPM, go deploy it on your server. It's here's a container, deploy it wherever you want. Uh, so it, it's it's a really interesting trend to see, and it's one that um, at least we have been advocates of. You know, hey, don't don't be afraid of this, don't be scared of it, right? It's it's new, but it's not scary. And I and I often tell people that they're already doing this, and they look at me kind of weird and say, "No, we're not. We're using VMs." And I often tell them, like, normally if you're using a VM, I don't care if it's VMware, OpenStack, a cloud provider. Most people have already moved to a world where they take a root file system. They bundle a single application or an app and its dependencies, and then they create an image out of it. We just call them machine images in that world. And you put it behind an autoscaler, and you scale it out horizontally. And if you look at what Docker brings to the table or something like Docker in this form of an application container, it's essentially the same thing, right? You take 
your app and all of its dependencies admit they're a bit heavy today because of the base OS is just a bit unnecessary, but you know what? It's the easy way to make the transition from VM images to application images, and then we just start a single application. So I think this is why we saw such a rapid adoption is because people have already been doing this, except for the tools have changed and the focus has changed a little bit to actually get to the point of running an application versus building up a OS boilerplate. All right, so um, I so I, I've seen Kelsey on Twitter a few times, and I you know I really hadn't paid attention until one day he just kind of came out of the blue with this. I, he got retweeted by someone, and I saw this particular statement that he made. And it was basically about developer advocacy in general, um, and I'm going to go ahead and pull it up because I can't I can't quote it by heart. But uh, it says I'm a, I'm a developer advocate, not an evangelist, and that, that was really where I liked to to have Kelsey come in and elaborate on that because. What I see a lot out there in social media is that people like to use the word evangelist and like to throw it around, and I kind of hate the term. Um, and I want to I know why you decided to differentiate from evangelist and developer advocacy. Right, and I think you know, those are different job roles in my opinion. I think an evangelist is someone, and I don't want to generalize too much because there are people that have that title. In some cases, they're stuck with that title. But I think the general perception of an evangelist is that someone will walk the party line, they will stay on message, and their goal is to present the thing they're pay, being paid to present. And they may even convince themselves that is the best thing for you. And I think that presents some kind of a compromise. If your mission is to go out and convince people that the thing you've been paid to do is the best thing for them, I think you can get into some situations where you lose the ability to really be subjective and say, you know what, the technology that I have is not a good fit for you. Um, if it was, uh, here's how you would use it. On the advocacy side, my goal is really to look at the user first and say, what are you actually trying to do? And also make sure that I actually understand what the user does. So I need to also be a user as well. So I need to actually run the technology, understand the pain, and that way I can actually advocate for you. Meaning if I show up to an event and I'm talking about something, more than likely I'm talking about it because I already use it. I would be using it if I was not paid to talk about it. And I would also be competent and you know, technically adept enough to go into technical details from a user perspective about that particular technology. And if it doesn't work for you, I will be your representative when you're not around at the product meetings code reviews, making sure that the product actually works for our users that we're attempting to target. So basically, you're not just telling us it's cool and never actually knowing how it works? It's skin in the game, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, not, just, it's not just an empty microphone with empty promises, but, but it's, 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 it's speaking and listening. Speaking and listening, using, uh, I need to feel the pain. I'm never going to tell someone, hey, you should go build a custom scheduler in Kubernetes, and I've never done it. That won't work because then I couldn't be as authentic as I would like to be. I want to know what pain that is. And there's a lot of times when I'm prepping for a talk or submitting a CFP, I'll try to do the thing first. And this is why I do nothing but live demos during my, my speaking slots, even if it's a keynote. Because I want to make sure that I've gone through the pain before I attempt to tell you to do the same thing. And if I'm having trouble doing it, you better bet I'm going to have PRs or issues filed against my own project saying, look, as a user... I was not able to do this, and I won't be able to speak about this at the next event or conference because I just don't think a user would be set up for success if I did. 
live demos all the time, huh? That's that's asking for trouble. <laughs> uh, it's 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 my favorite part. I, I will admit that uh, I, I've I've I spent a couple of weekends just just hung, hanging out, searching Kelsey's name, and watching everything I could find on YouTube because uh, there's just it, there's actually an alarming amount of of talks that he's given over the past year, year and a half. Um, and, and it's funny, you can watch the evolution of this gentleman getting better at live demos, just, just down to every way that somebody can break a demo or screw up a talk. Like you've been through it, sir. You've figured them all out and you've got it down to a science. It's, it's, it's actually rather entertaining as someone else who's, who's in the space to, to watch, like, go ahead, try to hit that web address. It's proxy through my laptop guys. That's not going to work. <laughs> yes. I make sure that, uh, I've learned those lessons the hard way where people are like, you know, hacking your site live on stage and, you know, yeah. it, it makes it fun, but you also got to make sure that you keep focused and you own the content. Yeah. You're a braver man than I, I'm a video, I'm, I'm a video guy. Uh, see, that's like lip syncing, you know, you go to the Grammys and you know, like, are you lip syncing right now? That's kind of how I feel about the video, but you know what? I think I should be smart in the future and have a backup video before I embarrass myself too much. Yeah, I always do a backup video when I'm doing a live demo. And, and honestly, when you mentioned lip syncing, we do consider Glenn to be the Christina Aguilera of this group. Listen, a little bit of a rat hole, but, but on, on, on the topic, the, the way that I've always looked at it is either you're honest or you're not. Either it's possible or it isn't, right? Mm -hmm. and, and whether you physically show them in something that looks like you're actually doing it, or you show them a recording where you show that what you were doing at, at the heart, again, you're either being honest or you're not. And, and if you are, and it's going to work, then it's going to work. And if you're not, then you're going to get called out and they're going to figure that out and you're going to get burned. It's that simple. And I think that is the heart of it. You need to make sure that what you're asking people to do is real and that you know, and you can answer the tough questions. So even if you play the video and someone goes into a Q and a session and, they, and they, they want more details about what they just saw, you should be ready and prepared uh, to give them that detail or just be honest and say, hey, I don't know. Yeah, that's a big problem in the industry, people having the courage to say, I don't know, because it becomes this stigma where you, if you say, I don't know, it, it suggests that you're not an expert, right? And that's not the case. Part of it is, is being able to admit when you don't know something and having the awareness to know when you don't know something. Yeah, totally agreed. I, um, I, I think that's my, the thing that I'm always conscious of, and, and that's part of my preparation, actually. If I, as I'm preparing for these like, live demos and talks, and if I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, I will just scavenge in the code base, ask everyone involved to make sure that I'm actually well prepared to show up. So what's the worst meltdown you've had during a live demo? Like, What's the, the absolute like, bottom of the barrel where you just said, oh man, I should never do a live demo again? It's kind of like when people get way, way too drunk, they say, I'll never drink again. Um, so I'll tell you, and the thing is, I was at one of the first Kubernetes launches where I think as a project, we had one of our big announcements, and it was at a place called Galvanize in San Francisco, and Red Hat was there, all our peers, and I was at CoreOS at the time, and they asked me to kind of open it up and just show people how Kubernetes works end to end. And at the time, that's when I was setting up clusters from scratch, Oh, man, I was really brave. And I remember the whole cluster just broke, right? It was the whole networking thing just broke completely. And I'm sitting there sweating. I'm about five or six minutes over time. And I asked the audience, it's like, um, I'm just going to rebuild the entire cluster live. You guys with me? And then everyone was like, yeah. And I'm just sweating every keystroke. And you know what? Totally recovered. Brought the cluster back, completed the live demo. 
And I remember getting off stage and uh, one of the Red Hat guys was like, you totally staged that, didn't you? And I was like, nope. But that's when I really questioned this idea of doing live demos in front of live people. And that's why they call him the Samuel L. Jackson of tech conferences. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is there a lot of swearing involved and say what again? And Nope. I, don't, I try not to cuss at all, actually. Um, I just try to be respectful of people's feelings, opinions. And I try to keep it focused on the content because, again, I think my main goal is that someone walks away either inspired or they get over a fear that they can't do this. So I want to show them how easy things could be, try to articulate very clearly what the steps are to go from point A to point B. So I kind of leave out all the the extra stuff. You know, I just usually try to keep it focused and, you know, make sure that anyone can watch the, the video. My mom actually watches these videos now. So the last thing I want to do is like, have her like, why are you cussing so much? <laughs> My mom has tried to like read things I've written and she's like, no, nah, I'm done. I can't do this. <laughs> Mostly because it's terrible, but also because she doesn't understand it. All right. So you work at Kubernetes. Are you, are you strictly developer advocacy or do you do other things? Because I mean, and here we don't strictly do podcasts, right? And so Andrew's a TME. I'm a TME. Glenn's, I don't know, FlexPod master guru of some sort. Um, I don't what is What is your official title these days, Glenn? Uh, no, I'm just, I'm still a TME, dude. Oh. I thought you screw titles. I'm so over titles and all this nonsense. But oh, anyways, okay. Well, anyway, so um, so what else? What else do you do there at Kubernetes, if anything? I mean, or is it just? I mean, and I'm not. I'm not saying that developer advocacy isn't enough to do. Right. I'm just wondering if you had another role besides that. Yeah. So I totally agree. Actually, every every job I've had, I've always saw, and I even know what's called developer advocacy. I just thought everyone, no matter what your role was, if you're building something, you should be the biggest advocate of the thing you're building. And I always thought of it as an auxiliary title that you just kind of did when you had a moment to come up for air. So at Google, you know, my biggest job is on the cloud platform is to help people understand and raise awareness of Google technologies. So that may include writing blog posts, working on the Kubernetes up and running book. I also deal a lot with some of um, what you would call competitors, like the HashiCorp guys. I spend a lot of time looking at their technologies. In the past, I've contributed to some of their projects. I have a couple of open source projects that I manage myself. Um, anything to move the industry forward, whether that's on Kubernetes, Nomad, or hell, even Swarm. I spent a bunch of time right after DockerCon opening tickets against Swarm, you know, giving my feedback on how it can be a better project uh, for people. So the advocacy part, I think at Google, is a little bit more general. Um, we see engineers can slide between being a software engineer, an advocate, or even an SRE. And the advocacy part is to say, how can we make an industry impact? So we try not to focus on a single product. You know, I just get associated with Kubernetes a lot. But if you look around, I'm happy to give talks about Docker, Nomad, even console. You know, all of those things are just considered in the industry space right now. So that's just kind of my role at, at Google is to also deal with like partners. How can we even make someone successful building a business on top of Kubernetes or any Google technology. So I think it's a little bit more flexible than the title uh, would hint at, but it's definitely one of those things where you gotta make the best of it. So Kelsey, in your role at, at Google and with Kubernetes, do you find that that is a challenge from your management's perspective? Um, and, and I say that, you know, NetApp is, we are an, an old school traditional storage company, right? We have well-defined competitors and, and you know, products that uh, overlap in some areas and, and things of that nature. So, you know, when you're 
advocating for these solutions that may or may not take advantage of your own products. Does that sometimes cause what I'll term as, as heartburn amongst your peers? Actually, no, I've been rewarded quite a bit at Google already. So I think that's usually the biggest sign that your manager approves. And, you know, my manager has done a great job actually of putting me in situations to even be more successful than I was on track to be. And I think what, again, it goes back to that making an industry impact. So one thing I like about Google, you know, when they hired us in, this is an engineering track. So they expect that you're, you know, you're capable of being an engineer. You're capable of contributing to the products that you talk about. And it's all about making an industry impact because we think that is where the value comes from the community. So if I were only to talk about Kubernetes this, Kubernetes that, and I didn't have any context for anything else, I wouldn't be as strong or maybe even as respected as I think I am now. So when they see me invest time in, let's say, Nomad, and I'm speaking at HashiConf without a mention of Kubernetes, there's still a lot of value there. You know, Even if you just thought about it, from the obvious viewpoint, we're a cloud provider. If you want to spend money with us running Mesos or Nomad, that is 100% okay. It's almost the same dollars. I think it's important to point out you know, exactly what you said, right? It's okay, right? You still have that respect. You still have that you know, command, that degree of, of knowledge because you have used all of those other products, because you have that uh, as you said earlier, right, that sympathy and understanding what customers are trying to do. And, you know, not just as you're presenting solutions to them, but I think also as you're going back internally, uh, you know, where it, I'm, I'm not saying this, you know, I, or I'm not requesting this feature or that this bug gets fixed just because I want to give you guys work. It's because, well, no, these are legitimate things that need to be taken care of. Exactly. And I think that's probably the most important thing. So I always think about this full circle of being an advocate if you're an advocate, one of your goals should be to affect the actual product, make it make yourself so meaningful to the company that they just see you as an invaluable asset that without this person, we're not sure if we can actually continue to stay focused and ship the best product possible that has been influenced by our customers. So part of our job is to kind of reduce the signal to noise and making sure that we extract the right pieces out. And the best way of doing that is just to make sure that you're all around in the space. So I'm not familiar with Kubernetes. I don't know if there's a product manager associated with it, but it, do you find that there are conflicts between the things that you are, are pushing for, advocating for in the product versus what they believe? Um, I think you could get into that. You know, just if you, if you really focus on a, hey, I'm asking for this, and that may go against maybe a corporate agenda or, or something that was on a roadmap. So this is why I usually approach these requests from a user empathy standpoint. And so I do these user empathy workshops where I get everyone in the room, project managers, no matter what your title is, if you're involved with the project, you're welcome to come. And I just give out activities. You know, you know, let's make it a hack day, right? Our goal on this particular hack day is to build this on top of Kubernetes. And we have tons of fun and people struggle. And when they struggle, at that point, that's when our users' problems become their problems. And there's nothing to argue about. Like you as a user found it very difficult to complete the task. That's easy. There's nothing to argue with. You're almost arguing with yourself at that point. Yeah. I, I, I love that idea so much. It's not even funny that just the, the, even the, calling it an empathy workshop, that, that, is, that is brilliant. So it's funny you mentioned that, Glenn, um, because I agree. It's a brilliant idea. And it's actually something that we've started doing inside of NetApp. 
Uh, so a couple of our guys over in EMEA, and now it's spread into APAC and in the very near future on the West Coast, uh, we have exactly that. We have hack nights where we gather you know, employees who are interested in doing specific things, and it's, okay, guys, here's the environment. Go out and try and do this. Right, and learn what it's like to be a user. Learn the pain points, learn the things that are difficult, and then you can take that, build the empathy, and apply it to the features and the things that are being worked on uh, in the future. And I would add a little bit to that for anyone listening that wants to kind of bring this into their environment. If you're the facilitator of an event like this, it's really critical that you make sure no one can dodge the real pain point, right? So if you invite yeah. people to come in and have fun, they're going to have fun. So what I'll do is say, hey, we're all going to deploy Kubernetes from scratch today. And they're like, oh, this is easy. But you can't use your scripts. You can't use GKE. And you can only use our documentation or whatever you can find on the web. Because that's what our customers do. So you have to make sure that you put the, the fence around them to make sure they walk away with the empathy. Because it's not necessarily the goal is to succeed 100% based on their internal knowledge. I really need them to know exactly what the user feels. So when they go to the next meetup and they look at that user and that user says, hey, I found your documentation difficult. And they will say, I totally agree with you. So do I. And this is how we're fixing it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I almost want to pause right now and just highlight something because you keep using a, a couple of incredibly important words, Kelsey. And, and uh, the, the two that, that, that keep jumping off the page at me are empathy and empowerment. Um, and, and I, 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 I'm so on board. It's so, it's so critical to success, particularly as you start to scale these systems and, and, and you have a reliance on a larger pool of individuals. You just, you have to hand that over. Right. But, but I, I love how you make that a core part of, of everything that, that, that goes into getting this done. You know, you know, what's funny. Someone always asked me, or some people ask me, Kelsey, why are you so happy? And I'm like, it's not the fact that I'm happy. It's just the fact that I'm reliving the moment when I personally learned how to do something. If you're learning a new programming language and you get it to compile and it works, that is a very satisfying, satisfying feeling, even when you're working by yourself. And whenever I can replicate that on any front and I see that in the user's eyes, you have no choice but to feel that same emotion repeatedly over and over again. And that's just where I focus all of my energy so it's one of these things that just helps me stay happy. So let's talk about storage and Kubernetes. Um, because right now, I think people are having tons of success with stateless applications on these container runtimes. I mean, just in general, right? Without state or storage, uh, things become dramatically easier. When we add storage into the mix, there's a couple of things that are, are I find challenging or I actually see other people find challenging. One is the application that is stateful, how easy is it to actually manage? And most of them don't actually provide any great tools to manage them. You know, some of them don't even have built-in replication. So you're doing all of these hacks around the application to make it run well. And then if you introduce something like that in, a, in an environment like Kubernetes, where it can be rescheduled to any node, the IP address can change, then you have to go and build a big machine around it to like update configs, make sure that the replication continues, you know, leader master election, all that stuff gets really complicated and it's almost a little bit outside of the storage problem. So inside of Kubernetes, we do try to make it really easy to deal with storage. So we have this concept of, of storage plugins or storage providers. 
And what we try to promote a little bit is this idea that we want to make sure that your application is decoupled from the machine. So in order to do that, we try not to rely on local storage, you know, like a specific path, like mount var lib data into this specific container. Because now, once you start to write data there, you're stuck to that machine. And that's kind of been the problem with a lot of automation tools. When we start pinning applications to a server and that server goes down, it's a nightmare to recover. So in the Kubernetes world, we try to promote this idea of using network-attached storage. That includes things like iSCSI, NFS, or some cloud provider's Elastic Block service. And the goal there is that you can describe that your application needs a specific volume, maybe something about its shape and its dimensions, and then have the scheduler automatically take care of those things for you. So in the case of, you know, let's say you have a database instance and you need about 500 gigs of storage, in Kubernetes, we can auto-provision that storage for you, depending on the description of what you need, and make sure that the application is deployed on a machine that can actually attach that volume and make it accessible. And the great thing about that is if that machine were to die and you're using network-attached storage, then we can actually reschedule that particular application to a new machine, connect the storage, and then mount it into the container at runtime. So that's kind of the philosophy around Kubernetes storage, and I'm sure you guys will have questions about some of the challenges with that. Yeah, so I want to jump in and say that you know the Kubernetes persistent storage paradigm with the persistent volumes, persistent volume claims, and all of those things associated with that uh, uh, mechanism is by far the most advanced, right? Certainly the most mature of the major orchestrators in, you know, how do I, as the application owner, application deployer, you know, collect, manage, uh, uh, di distribute the persistent storage requirements that I, that I need, that I have. Uh, but I also wanted to jump back a little bit. And, you know, you were talking about how a lot of containerized applications today are ephemeral, right? They, they have no persistence associated with them. And, I think a lot of that stems from, you know, the the concepts, you know, the the first adopters of, uh, or, or I guess widespread adopters of containerized applications have been those twelve factor apps. I'm using air quotes. Um, so can you can you kind of describe, you know, twelve factor applications, and then really why, even though twelve factor says that, you know, yes, no individual service has state, that doesn't mean that the application doesn't have state. Yeah. So I think this is a lot of design patterns that people have seen work. So whether you're talking about 12-factor or microservices, it's this idea that instead of having one big application that does everything and maybe hold state like file uploads from a user, right? A user uploads a file and then that one application instance tries to store that file on the local server. So some people would say that's a stateful application because if we were to blow away that server, we lose all the user's file uploads and that can be bad. So to fix that, if we were to take an application like that and move it into like this 12-factor idea, instead of up, when we get that upload from the user, instead of putting it on a local file system, we may push it to a NFS share or some block storage somewhere where we can say, or an object store, where that upload comes in, we push it to a central object service that will then persist that particular object for us, and then we move away a little bit from the POSIX semantics of file systems, and that allows us to actually scale the app horizontally. So now if I have 50 instances of this application running and you do a file upload to any of them, since you're using an object store, there's no issue there. And at that point, you can almost claim that that app 
is stateless because it doesn't hold on, on state on that particular server, but it is stateful to the user, meaning that if I upload this particular photo, I can go to any other app instance and retrieve that photo. But what's happening behind the scenes is that we're probably centralizing the state onto a particular service versus having every application instance responsible for that state. So, so Kelsey, what's your opinion of taking things like databases or other you know, traditional state you know, services that provide state uh, and putting them into containers? I think that is easy. I, and I always tell people, you're already doing that today. If you do yum install and you get MySQL on your server, you have some bits on disk, and what you're doing at that point is you're sharing the namespace, the mount namespace of the server, you have no isolation, and you, you just hope that no one comes along and overwrites your files. And if they do, it's going to be a bad time for your database. All containers really do in this case is give you a bit of isolation. So when you install MySQL you know, 5.5, that will be installed in its own cheroot. It will be protected from the rest of the system. And then you come along and you install MySQL 5.6. You know, 5 that can also be in its own cheroot without you having to make a compromise on what version gets to be installed on the server. So containers as a packaging format for a data, database that's a non-issue, non-discussion. The thing, the issue comes in is that when you take a container image, so the bits of MySQL and you put them on disk, the other part of the conversation is how do we actually run that application? And a lot of people run into issues because depending on your container runtime, let's take Docker for example. Docker's going to try to do a good job of giving us a default configuration for that container process, right? So images are used to create processes. So for that process, when we're running it, the goal will be to lock it down, right? Let's lock down unnecessary system calls. Let's not mount in extra file system paths that aren't required. And that also may mean that you don't have any persistence. So any data that you write is going to be ephemeral and you shut down that database, it could be gone because it's garbage collected by your container runtime. And that's where the challenges present themselves for a lot of people is that they're used to having their database have full access to the system. So most people don't really know what their database is accessing. What file system paths? Are they mounting in any block devices, raw block devices? And that is a new learning experience for people to know what it really means to run a database on a server. So I don't think that's the actual challenge. Yeah, so do you see, or, or can you describe how Kubernetes changes that? How, and I'm saying that knowing that the answer is persistent volumes, but I'm curious to hear your description of that paradigm and how it, it makes this easier. Right, so it's the funny thing is that there is a platform that has proved that we can actually take a database and move it around multiple servers and keep the storage in place. And that's what we do with hypervisors today. Right? When you think about VMware, OpenStack, and all the cloud providers, they essentially do this. You put your OS on the virtual machine, which is logically kind of like a container. Yeah. You can schedule it to any hypervisor, and then we normally bring in storage just in time. And the right pattern is that you're not using the local storage of the hypervisor. That would be dangerous and also prevent you from doing things like live migration. So to get around that, we normally use either some replicated file system or we have a connection to our storage device on every machine to make that whole operation transparent to the user. They think that root volume is a part of the VM when really it could just be some block device. So Kubernetes just builds on that. So when you describe your application, you also describe the volumes that you need. And a lot of times you can refer to uh, a block device on the cloud provider platform, iSCSI, NFS, 
and that will just move around with you. So you can almost consider your VM or even bare metal to be the hypervisor even for the container and that the container application kind of lives one-to-one with that storage. So Kubernetes just makes that easy by allowing you to describe those things, auto-provision those things, and also remember, in the case of what we just launched recently, called pet sets. So pet sets is this idea that most things in your cluster should be somewhat stateless, you know, cattle-like that we can move them around and the system will recover from failures because we don't rely on a single machine. But sometimes you do have these pets that need a specific name. They must run in a specific server and have access to a specific volume. So what Kubernetes does in that case is provide all the things you need to make that a little easier. So that way, if you create, let's say, a database and you scale it from one to two, we know that we need to create a separate volume for each of those instances unless you're using a uh, a clustered file system or something that supports read-write semantics. We also give you stable names, so it'll be MySQL 1 and MySQL 2, and that's something you can count on to exist and would automatically do DNS resolution between those names so you can kind of have somewhat fixed configurations. Yeah, I I think it's a really elegant solution, you know, compared to, uh, or or at least it allows the application owner, right, the, the person who's creating that application specification to manage their own requirements. And it comes in a really nice, easy to, uh, easy to read, easy to parse, you know, format where I'm saying I want these containers connected to each other this way. I want this storage connected to these containers, and I want it to follow those around as things are happening. So it's it's a lot. I, I think it's a lot more clearly defined than say a traditional. You know, maybe it is MySQL that I'm deploying, and you know, I go to the storage team and request an iSCSI LUN, and then promptly forget about it. And at some point in the future, that virtual machine gets destroyed. But does anybody know that the storage is allocated to it? Right? Does anybody know what the configuration is supposed to be? So it's definitely a, a new way, but I think it's a better way of doing things. Exactly. And I also think, you know, and that gets you deployments. Now, the thing where I ask people to be cautious is that most people do not have or have built up the skills to manage databases in a dynamic environment, mainly because most people have already succumbed to the idea that our production database runs on these three servers. Yeah. No one, no one logs into them. You don't touch them. You don't run any unnecessary scripts outside of a change window. And people have been doing that for years. To give that up and throw all of this into a dynamic environment and you haven't been exercising that skill it's going to be painful because you, you build up so much cruft on these servers that have been running for five to 10 years and no one's allowed to touch them. So you've never gotten really good at doing database change management. You just don't change anything. So to, to that end, Kelsey, kind of hijacking on the tail end of that, I'm kind of curious for, for the, the people you had an opportunity to interact with, you know, with, with Google as the, 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 the name behind you, you know, that obviously draws a, a very big crowd everywhere you go. Um, and then your work is top notch. So, so you're able to, to get the repeats. How's that conversion going? You know, how, how are we actually taking, you know, a 15, 20 year IT veteran who quote unquote knows everything and in fact is having to relearn everything that they've ever known? Yeah. So my approach is I, I've worked with them all. You know, I don't, you know, I'm not targeting a specific group. And when I go into these groups, the first thing I do is listen. Like, what, what is your environment? And they say, well, we got this Oracle database over here. We got some Java stuff over here. 
uh, we have some stateless stuff over here. And I said, okay, look, let's just walk through this pragmatically, right? We don't have to blow away everything. You can actually install Kubernetes and give it a portion of the server if that's what you want to do to get started. And I said, hey, day one, don't even think about moving Oracle into this situation. Don't even bring it up in the planning meetings. Let's just park that idea so we can get some focus. Once we get everything done on the app side and you're just dead bored, you have nothing else to do, then you go touch the database. But there's little return on investment to bring your database in in the initial discussion and planning period because a lot of times people don't even know how to manage that thing outside of the current way that they're doing it. Now, I've seen a lot of success where people are like taking net new stuff because that's very obvious. They're very focused on getting that stuff working in the new paradigm, but also showing them how to do things like Jira. You know, the other day I gave a presentation at DevOps Days where I had Jira running in a container on Kubernetes and did it the way that you would have to do it in a typical enterprise, right? Building that container up from scratch, getting the right yeah. version of Java, documenting everything. And that's just to show people you can totally do this. This is not an impossible mission, but I do have a little bit of empathy knowing that you may not know how all of your enterprise applications work. So it's going to be a bit of reverse engineering to figure out what all of the dependencies are to get that into the container. So that's where I focus with a lot of people. If you're in that world where you've been kind of relying on the OS to do all the dependency management and you don't really know what those dependencies are, taking that and just say, let's take a step back. Let's go through the trial and error phase of getting these apps ported over one at a time. And it's okay if it takes you 18 months and everyone else is doing it in two. Do it works for your company. So do you do you find a lot of unexpected challenges when you're migrating what what I guess would be considered a traditional or a platform two application into that type of environment? Yeah, I've seen issues where you know the vendor hasn't uh, or the vendor assumes that it had access to devices that would be considered insecure by container standards, and you go and you install it for the first time. It's like what? Why is this application making these kind of system calls? And most people, even in the enterprise, even the security conscious people, do not know what system calls their apps are making. They just don't even yeah. track that kind of thing. So they will learn for the first time. They throw it in a container that has a stripped down limited set of system calls by default. We can, you, know, you can always open up the number of system calls. But having that tight config, that's where I see a lot of the challenges where people say, oh, I didn't know we were making those system calls. And that's kind of alarming that it's making that system call in the first place. So it's usually a bit of the learning. That's where I see most of my friction. All right. So, uh, Kelsey, do you have anything else that you wanted to bring up? Uh, anything that's new, that's coming new with Kubernetes? Uh, any sort of releases that are coming? Uh, I think in the Kubernetes space, and one thing I'm really excited to see, I was just at uh, Digital Ocean HQ uh, yesterday in New York, and I was really happy to see that users are now using their imagination and looking at Kubernetes for the platform that it is. So it isn't a PaaS, you know, you can build a PaaS on top. There are some great PaaSes, you know, from Red Hat with OpenShift, Deus, Apprenda, Absera. You know, there's a big PaaS movement happening on top of Kubernetes. But what I was actually happy to see from this particular group over at DigitalOcean is that they understood what the Kubernetes APIs were, and they started to build their own custom, somewhat niche integrations that really made Kubernetes uh, super powerful to solve their problems. So, you know, they built their own kind of language on top of the Kubernetes primitives so that their developers didn't really have to think about Kubernetes, but they could describe everything about their app from logs to metrics to deployments to high availability 
and this new kind of language that they built on top of the Kubernetes primitives, which makes it super powerful. And that's something that a vendor probably really couldn't do. You know, they took the expertise of their organization and leveraged the technology that Kubernetes brings on and just made something super special. And I could just see the other people in the room were very delighted by the results of that. And I think going forward in the community, and one thing that I'll be talking about a lot here is how does you as a user understand what power you actually have? So there's nothing wrong with vendors. I think we all do a good job to add value to a lot of these customers. You know, in the case of NetApp, people are not going to go out and build all their own storage devices, right? That, that's a lot of expertise and heavy lifting. So you kind of bring in that value. But what we want people to do is when they do get that value, we want them to use the storage in a very interesting way. We don't want them to feel limited by our own imaginations because that's where they don't get a lot of value out of. And then it just becomes a commodity. So showing people how to go further than, you know, the average marketing or the average blog post will do, letting people unlock their own ideas and vision, being able to see that in person and also validate some of the work that I'm doing going forward. I think you're going to see this quite a bit. We're going to trade the command line tools, bash, you know, shell scripting for APIs and integration where people are going to start to build these distributed systems on top of things like Kubernetes where they can just focus on new forms of automation, new value, and everyone's going to seem like a really powerful distributed systems engineer. And everyone's going to be able to do this from sysadmin to developer. So along those lines, um, I'd be reminiscent if I didn't bring this up just because I've been so vocal everywhere else and now you're here. Um, but can we talk a little bit about the whole no-op stuff and, and what specifically that does and does not mean? Great. I just did a keynote at DevOps Days PDX about no-ops. It was called No-Ops. And, you know, first thing I did was go back and just read the original blog post from Forrester when they put it up in, I think it's 2011. And what they were saying by no-ops was DevOps is a step backwards, mainly because I think showing more people how to do ops is kind of a leaky abstraction, right? We don't want everyone configuring servers. The question should be, why are we still configuring servers? And if we think about what no-ops is, it's almost this, from a user perspective, I don't want to have ops be the thing that stops me from doing what I want to do. Here's my application. I want to deploy it. At some companies, that means opening the ticket, someone processing that ticket manually, maybe they get it right, maybe they don't, and then you have a meeting, and then you try to resolve it with firefighting in war rooms. That, some people would say is ops, and people are saying, no, I don't want to do that. So given the new competitive landscape, you have tools like Heroku, Cloud Foundry, you know, Google's App Engine, you have all of these tools that are trying to reduce the amount of ops that is presented to a user when they want to get something done. And the analogy I used there was, have you ever went to go rent a car? And I'm, I'm pretty spoiled by the amount of travel that I do. I'm like a Hertz President Circle member. So when I rent a car, I just want to go online, pick the car, pay my money, and when I show up, I just want keys and driving out. I went to a place that didn't have Hertz, and I had to go to a counter. And a person looked at my ID, they printed out some paperwork. I had to go to a garage, find a car, show the paperwork to someone on the outside uh, before I could leave. And I was like, that, that experience, I don't want to know anything about that experience. It was too much friction between my request and what I actually want to do. And I think ops, people will always exist. 
But the way we present our solutions to people should not be in a way that they have to learn ops in order to utilize it because that's just not where the industry is going. Yeah, and, and it's probably just super niche, like picking apart language, right? But it's specifically, that's the part, the, the last sentence there, I, I feel is lost in this conversation nine times out of 10. And, and there, people think that there's this panacea where you're going to be able to do a general reduction across the board and do more with less. And, and fundamentally, those disciplines are still going to be there. Really, what we're talking about, if I'm reading your, what you're saying correctly, is we're going to consolidate onto a tool set. And you'll have people who, who, who worry about building it on the back end and people who worry about keeping it running on the front end. And they'll use the same tools, but you still have those different disciplines. Exactly. And, and I think a lot of people, when they say we're going to do more with less, and I agree with them, you are going to do more with less, but that doesn't mean firing anyone. That doesn't mean a workforce reduction. You're just going to now be unblocked. So if you had an yeah. idea of shipping 50 things this quarter and traditionally you could only do three, now with the same team, you should be able to do more without necessarily growing the staff to get that done. Awesome. All right, Kelsey Hightower, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Kelsey, if people want to get in touch with you or they want to follow you on Twitter, how do they do that? Uh, just hit me at Kelsey Hightower on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are actually wide open, and I love doing one-on-ones to help you through your problems, so don't be shy. Apparently, Kelsey has a wealth of time. <laughs> How do you get so much time, Kelsey? Do you like just clone yourself? No, nope. Kubernetes I, is doing all his actual work, man. Oh, there you man. go. Oh, See, you go. The, the this, is, the, this is what happens when you're using the right tools. I can focus on people. There you go. Excellent. All right. Um, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, ask us a question or ask Kelsey a question. We can always forward it on, but you could probably just ask him directly because apparently he can answer everything. Um, podcast at netapp.com. Uh, and uh, again, thank you, Kelsey, for joining us. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Let's actually bring in one of NetApp's own developer advocates, Josh Atwell. Um, he's actually from the Solid Fire division of NetApp. Josh, hi. Hi. How's How it going? Are, it's going really well. Really well? <laughs> I don't know if I'm convinced. Oh, no, it is. You, I, you, I got mostly a full night's sleep last night. That's good. That's yeah. good. You weren't tossing and turning, worrying about insight. Oh, no. Oh, no. then you haven't been here long enough. No, worry is the wrong word. Yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm certainly staying very busy, which actually I think applies to what we're going to talk about. I, it, I think it does. So um, let's start off with what you think about developer advocacy, based on what you've heard from Kelsey and based on your own thoughts. I, I think Kelsey's spot on. Right when I look at my role and when we were structuring my role, you know, as as part of the kind of transition, you know, looking at how the market was shifting and and the need for this role. I'm not an evangelist, right? There's there's a certain element to where there's some evangelism in there, but kind of like Kelsey, I, I get excited seeing people have that light bulb moment, being able to identify that there are things that they can do with infrastructure that they never realized was possible. So I very much focus on creating that moment as frequently as possible, spending as much energy as I can with people, trying to make them aware of the capabilities and really trying to connect dots. I, I almost feel like I'm a, a movie producer more than anything because a producer's role is to get the right people connected with one another in order for the magic to happen. I spend a lot of time coordinating and saying, you know, there, there's somebody out there having trouble with something, getting them connected with the right person, you know, maximizing the success of, of our customer and partner base. 
So you're telling me that as a as a developer advocate and not an evangelist, and let's say I would call you an evangelist, you don't ever get the urge to after somebody has the light bulb go off to just say testify. <laughs> you know, I'm going to start doing that. You though. should. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm I'm not going to do that. No, you absolutely <laughs> should. You have seen the light. You have seen the light. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think I'm going to do no. that. But uh, but you know, I I do like the fact that. And, and one of the ways I look at it, especially when I work with our partners and with our customers, I get to kind of amplify the advocacy role that I have by making people successful. Because the reality is, is once they understand and they see, they'll start blogging or they'll start talking internally about the capabilities. They'll start sharing that. And, you know, I've, I just plant seeds, provide a little bit of water and, and, and a nurturing environment to grow, and then just kind of sit back and, and, and let people grow. And if they need anything to, to grow a little further, then uh, I'm your point of contact. So as a developer advocate, do you actually write any code? You, you're, you're hitting me. You're, you're cutting me. Was deep. that a low blow? Nah, uh, I don't write much right now. Uh, I, I joke and I, I just updated my location on my Twitter profile to be living in Microsoft PowerPoint. Um, where, That's where I live right yeah. now. Um, yeah, and a lot of it has to do with all the conferences coming up. Uh, I will be writing a lot more code. I do get into code every now and then. I'm not doing as much learning right now um, with you know new languages and new things. I kind of focus on being you know two inches deep on a lot of things right now, just so that I can have conversations. Um, there's some some languages and some technologies where I don't where you know to Kelsey's point, I lack empathy, and I recognize that. But the the nice thing is is that like, for instance, with Docker and containers, I don't really have to have a whole lot of empathy there because I can go to Sully and say, Andrew, can you help me with this? this Sully person, has zero empathy. Well, <laughs> no, I, I think he does. Just right? towards me, mainly. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's, that's also a lack of sympathy. It's acceptable, actually. Yeah. It's pre- preferable, really. Yeah, probably for the best yes. for everybody. Yeah, so it's it's not at this point in time something where I feel like I need to have full empathy for, for every technology and every capability because, and simply because, I have people around me that I can reach out to that can that can demonstrate that without me. Um, when I started this role, you know, one of the things, and, and then, you know, with the you know, acquisition, you know, core focuses were, Build credibility. Let people know that NetApp has capabilities and that we have highly technical and capable and competent people around these. Demonstrate empathy, right? Which was the second goal. Which makes me feel good that you know Kelsey's on the same path with that. It makes me feel like I uh, I did my homework well and and I and was cho- choosing well on my my tar- target goals. Um, and then enablement, right? Not not only you know show that we are capable as a company to deliver a lot of the things that organizations are looking for being able to show that we know the pains that are involved and how we're improving and trying to make those experiences better, but also providing resources both in, you know, the TRs and videos, you know, in the developer community that we're standing up and getting online, the pub, you know, using those to help enable people so that, you know, as they're exploring those things and as they're hitting situations, they can identify, you know, resources to help them to, you know, improve that experience and, and enable them to be more successful. So let's talk a little bit more about the pub. And the pub is funny because when I first heard about it, I was like, wait a minute. A company that has been pretty much obsessed with beer since the inception hasn't been able to come up with a concept like the pub. 
you know, this 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 gathering of people, you know, of, of common interests to sit around a few pints and just talk about to just talk shop, right? So tell us about the pub and what it's trying to accomplish, where you can find it. Yep. So the pub you can find it at netapp.io. Uh, it is going to be a developer community. It starts out with a, a front end that enables you to go in, be able to quickly search for the technologies that are important to you, identify like if you're doing containers, OpenStack, PowerShell, whatever development framework that you're looking for mi- more information on. You can go there, find that information, be able to you know find out who is contributing that content, what content is there. And then you know we have a Slack team that you can sign up for where you can engage in live conversation with them. And what we're trying to do uh, is build this single point of contact, the single gathering place, you know, a pub, if you will, where everybody can get together, kind of talk about the technologies that are important to them, get our subject matter experts you know, front and center you know, with our customers and our partners, and make it easier for people to, to have that conversation. Because... You know, with the the first element that I mentioned before around credibility, you know, when when people in our industry think about, you know, what's enabling DevOps and developers and things like that, storage infrastructure is not anywhere near at the top of the list. The reality is I don't think it ever will be at the top of the list, and that's fine. But, you know, being able to have some awareness and understanding that it is there, it does exist, that, you know, the, the features that are accessible in storage infrastructure – can drive value in your software development lifecycle. It's kind of important, and you know the pub is a, a mechanism for us to kind of showcase, you know, the talent that we have at NetApp, the things that our customers and partners are doing from a technical perspective, and use that to enable people to to go on their own journey with these technologies. And as a secondary benefit, what it's actually doing is it's engaging the people that are starting to make the storage decisions, which are your developers. You know, when we're getting to the DevOps mindset. And bringing those people into the fold and making them understand that NetApp and Solidfire aren't just storage, right? They're solutions is really where the key value, I think, is of the pub. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely a uh, side effect of that, really. You know, the, the intent still being, you know, get engineers talking to engineers, be highly technical, no right, marketing. Right. But the, the side effect is, is that when, you know, we were talking a little bit ago and Kelsey talked about people having that aha, aha moment. I have a presentation that I that I do that I call it, you know, the the BS to oh crap, we can do that presentation because what happens is I start talking at the beginning and people call BS. They're like, "Yeah, you can't do that. That's that's not something that storage is and is able to enable." And by the end, I I show and demonstrate how those things happen. And the net result is is everybody sits there and goes, "Oh, man, I I had no idea that that was a possibility." So being able to kind of open people's eyes to what the platforms are capable of, of doing, the problems that they can solve, it's really fun and exciting. Um, we're, we're just getting started with the pub. In fact, uh, we're going to be going live with the new platform on August 24th, just in time for VMworld. We're going to have tons of stickers and swag and stuff at VMworld promoting the pub. And at Insight uh, in September and in Berlin in November, we've got a space called the Developer Cafe. And, you know, it's, it's intended for all of the partners and the SEs and the customers that attend, attend inside events to be able to come in and see what these technologies are, have the actual BUs and the engineering groups. They're producing some content, you know, very basic content, technical content, you know, engineer to engineer content that kind of explains the technology, how it's implemented and the value that it provides. 
and you'll be able to go into the developer cafe. Subject matter experts will be there for most of the technologies throughout the day. If you, know, you can just sit down, review the content, you can raise your hand, ask some questions, get a cup of coffee and a scone, you know, whatever. Be able to have an opportunity to go and have conversations about these technologies because we want to raise the awareness of everything that NetApp is doing as a whole in this space. And we all recognize that you know, DevOps and, and development enablement is an extremely important part of what organizations are doing today. So being able to you know, increase that awareness is going to make you know, everybody more successful. So at the Developer Cafe, will there be coffee? Yes, there will be coffee. In fact, uh, Intel is our overarching sponsor, and they are providing coffee. Should I drink with my pinky up or down? You should drink with your fingers on the keyboard, typing code. <laughs> so with a straw? <laughs> sure. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, you can drink however you want to, I guess. I mean, the... the no, con- I need you to tell me. Uh, pinky out, then. Thank you. As long as I can get a photo. I, I can't do things without people telling me how to do things. So. Yeah. No, I understand. I'll make sure that uh, if we capture you doing that, um, we will tweet it out on uh, the pub's uh, official uh, Twitter handle, at NetAppPub. At NetAppPub. If you want to follow the pub, at NetAppPub on the Twitters. On the Twitters. That's right. That's right. And Josh Atwell, how do we reach you on the Twitters? Oh, I'm very challenging to find on the Twitters. Is it it some like weird esoteric name? Yeah, it's uh, Josh underscore Atwell. Very, very challenging. There's an underscore there. That is challenging. Yes. Well, there is another Josh Atwell. There is. There is. Is it? Why didn't you just pick the Josh Atwell? Because he has that Twitter handle. What on earth? It's true. Why not just at Josh Atwell? Well, because if you do that, um, it 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 can be read um, Joe Shatwell. (laughs) That actually that actually happened to me once. I don't know if I can keep that, but I think I'm going to. I'm going to keep that in there because that's too. Fantastic. It is not one of it is not one Car- one of Carlin's seven words that you can't say on TV. That's right. So there will be no Highlander. There can be only one sword fight. No, there 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 can there can certainly be two Josh Atwells. We are we are distinctly different people. It's good. Is he is he also uh, redheaded? No, he's not. He's not. That's, no. that's probably where it, why it works. Then. Yeah, there could be only one. Plus, he's a really nice guy. I'm very intelligent. So the Complete opposite polar of you. opposite of the, me. That's the opposite right. of you. That's right. That's good. So he's like you're like evil Josh Atwell. Sure, we can go with that. Yeah. Did, did I tell you about one of my favorite parts about being a developer advocate? No. What is that? So I get to travel around and present at different events or just attend the events. And I was recently invited and and accepted to to speak at a puppet camp. And so when when I think about puppet and infrastructure, it's not terribly interesting to most people, right? In part because they don't know that there's something you can do there. And the other part is there's only so many things that you can do there, right? So in order to fill 40 minutes, it's really hard to like go diving into code talking about that for 40 minutes. So I decided that I'm going to do a presentation and outline why leveraging Puppet for infrastructure. Like, who would do it? Why would they would do it? What are the values? Also a fairly dry topic. Unless you put it to the theme of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So the entire presentation, you know, the first half of the presentation is just images from key scenes of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I tie in what I'm talking about you know, to the image. For instance, when you think about engaging with the networking team, it's very much like engaging with the Frenchman, right? You say, hey, 
we want to go to DevOps, do configuration management. And they say, I'm not interested. Already got one. You've, you've already got one. What, what are you talking about? Go away or I shall taunt you a second time. <laughs> right? And basically, you give up because if you don't, they'll start throwing farm animals at you and livestock. So I, I kind of go through like the, the different groups that you, you would interact with in trying to you know, leverage something like Puppet. You get the Knights control. of Knee in there? Yeah, so the Knights of Knee are actually the storage team. They are the Knights who say no. You shall, you know, we are the Knights who say no. You shall submit us a service ticket. Complete in content, but not too verbose. What about the Black Knight? Get one of those? Yep, that's a security team because the reality is, is we've come to an understanding. It took some blood. It took some fighting. But they're all on board now with leveraging configuration management to implement security. What about the Killer Bunny? Yep. Uh, so we got the Killer Bunny. That is kind of like the overarching thing preventing you from being successful. And the only way to defeat that is the the um, hand uh, was it the um, golden hand grenade of Antioch. The, um, uh, there's another word to describe it, but yes, the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Yep. What about the uh, the laden swallow? Did not do the laden swallow. That's a classic. I know. You missed on that. I, I didn't miss. I just couldn't find an appropriate place to put it. I ran out of organization. Doesn't, there doesn't have to be one because in the movie there isn't an appropriate place. It's just it's just there. I, I do I do bring it up uh, later in the in the talk where we where we're talking about making decisions. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's fair so, enough. Fair but enough. I don't have imagery to go along with it. Are you going to do a follow up with Life of Brian? Uh, yes, I am actually. Good. Yeah, I was Good. thinking about um, using Life of Brian for um, you know uh, cloud management platforms because it's kind of a very religious thing for some people. It is. Or I could do it with storage protocols because that seems to be a religious thing for people as well. Like NFS? Yeah. That's, all, that's the only one there is. That's the only one I can think of right now. Wow. The rest of them escape me. <laughs> uh, you know, something about that doesn't exactly surprise me. That's weird. I, I, it's, it's funny. I only live in one area. Yeah. And yeah. No, actually, I live in other areas. So, but that that's an interesting that's an interesting, you know, perspective because I see that a lot, especially coming in, you know, from SolidFire where we're primarily iSCSI. That's not to say that we think iSCSI is the only option. We certainly think it's the best option because frankly, it really works well for our platform as well. But, you know, I was having a conversation with uh, one of our partners recently about, you know, they were talking about, like, when is NFS going to show up on SolidFire? And rather than try to provide an answer where there is no answer, I simply asked, why do you need it? Why does it matter? Oh, well, you know, people really like NFS and they think it's easier and all. Like, guys, that, that is no longer an important element because the reality is, is that when you look at how people are consuming storage going forward, whether they're leveraging Cinder uh, for OpenStack, you know, Docker volume plugins for containers, VVOLs for VMware, none of those really care about the protocol, right? Because the storage team's no longer directly involved after initial instantiation, right? They're, they're, they are now monitoring and ensuring that everything is operating nominally. It's the consumers that are making the decisions at that point, and they don't care what the protocol is. They don't care if it's NFS. They don't care if it's iSCSI. Like even when you look at you know, doing direct attach to a machine, Right. Let's say you got a database system and they want two terabyte volume attached to it. They don't care if it's NFS, iSCSI, or Fiber Channel. What they care about is how how quickly they can just add it. And with something like Puppet Module, you just add it. Right? You identify what you want and you add it. And it doesn't really matter what the what the protocol is, it's rolled into the 
the resource that they're using to mount it. So I it'll be interesting to see how quickly, you know, these protocol, you know, religious zealotry moments start to wane, right? Because, you know, we've seen at Solid Fire that, you know, organizations we've gone into that were like, we are fiber channel environment and you don't have fiber channels, so we shouldn't talk. Who end up buying, realizing, well, the fiber channel wasn't really all that important anyway. So yeah, yeah, and I mean, that's, I mean, honestly, you know, as an NFS TME, I, I just have to kind of plug it. But you're right. I mean, I, I look at protocols as utilities. Yeah. Water, electricity. I mean, you don't think about the wires in your wall. You don't think about the plumbing nope. unless it breaks. Exactly. Right. So that's that's all it is. All you care about is can I can I take a bath, and can I drop my toaster in my bathtub? <laughs> I would hope that you wouldn't do it plugged in, but yeah. Well, you know, hey, it's experimenting. It, it, you know, it's a great way to get a hot tub because <laughs> not only will it heat the water, it'll make you shake. It will make you shake. It, you, it'll provide, you'll provide the bubbles. Oh my God. That, hold on, that hold is, on. I have a sound effect for this. Hold on. I think that is probably the most Glenn Sizemore thing I've ever heard you say. I have a sound effect for this. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> so awful. It is awful. All right, Josh Atwell, thank you for joining us today on the Tech on Tap podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast.netapp.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team and Kelsey Hightower, Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot, Kelsey. Good work. All right. All right. You're a natural. Oh, yeah. Now, now, at least we've answered one question, how, how uh, Justin got in touch with you. Apparently, wide open DMs. I did. I slid up into his DMs. Yep. <laughs> Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got nothing else after that.